Thank you for joining us for this episode of From All Sides, a podcast by Cube Group, where we explore the strategic, organisational and human sides of the major issues facing public value organisations. In the current COVID-19 crisis, our series focuses on the different ways this global pandemic impacts public service leaders and their organisations. And we discuss the ways we can be better prepared to lead Australia's response and recovery. More information on each episode is on our website, www.cubegroup.com.au. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, I'm Tom Craven. Today is Tuesday the 8th of December and, well, we're all just about over 2020, aren't we? It's now more than 11 months since the COVID-19 pandemic first hit Australia, a pandemic that has resulted in more than 27,000 confirmed cases and, of course, has cost more than 900 lives. The good news is the virus is now all but eliminated in Australia. Locally acquired cases are now rare. However, periodic outbreaks like the one experienced in South Australia last week remind us of the ongoing threat the virus poses to Australia. And of course, the virus continues to spread out of control in other parts of the world, particularly the United States, which today recorded its highest number of daily deaths in the pandemic so far. For most public purpose sectors, the focus is quickly shifting towards the task of recovery and adapting to the new normal. As the initial crisis abates, the other waves of disruption that the pandemic is causing are becoming more apparent every day. In particular, we're beginning to see the full impact of the crisis on the well-being of individuals and families, and that this impact will have lasting effects that must be front of mind as we move towards recovery. Our guest today is Liana Buchanan. Liana is Victoria's Commissioner for Children and Young People. The Commission is an independent statutory body working to improve the policies and practices affecting the safety and well-being of children and young people in Victoria. It has a special focus, of course, on vulnerable young people, as well as overseeing organisations that work with children and young people, particularly those in the child protection and youth justice systems. The Commissioner brings the views and experiences of young people to advocate for better policies and practices within government and across the community. In September this year, the Commission released a report on the impact and experience of young people during the lockdown restrictions, building off conversations with more than 600 children and young people. That report will form part of our conversation today, but it's also available from the Commission's website, and I would highly recommend it to listeners. It's a deeply insightful publication into the experience of Victorians' young people. Liana, thanks for being part of this conversation. It's good to be here, Tom. Can I start with asking just where you're speaking to us from today? What's your remote working setup like, and, and how have you found all that so far? Yeah, look, that's I've lost kind of how many months now, but I've been working at home like many of us in Melbourne since March. So I'm working from a little office that's upstairs. I've got a nice tree immediately behind me and a window. And look, it's it's very different. <laughs> it's very different as it is for lots of us. And I absolutely miss people. I miss my colleagues. I miss kind of talking to kind of large groups of people. But, you know, we've got through. Certainly, I've been incredibly relieved since the schools have returned to on-site learning. I have two kids who are in primary school. So that, I have to say, just brought a whole new level of juggle and, frankly, chaos. So now it feels quite calm working at home. There's just me and a big Great Dane dog who mostly stays quiet and let's hope he does for this podcast. Oh, I think a special guest appearance from the dog might be might be welcomed by some of our listeners. So let's see how we go. I mentioned in the introduction in September this year, you released a report on the experiences of vulnerable children in particular during the lockdown period. Can you start with sort of summarising what you learnt there and, and yeah, a bit about what that experience has been? 
Yeah, look, that's right. So around the middle of the year, we went out and heard from over 650 children and young people. And actually, they were from a whole range of backgrounds. So we went to great effort to make sure that we were hearing from children, young people from marginalised, more disadvantaged backgrounds, but also the full spectrum. So in summary, what we heard was, of course, experiences were varied. We heard from some children and young people, particularly those who were in pretty well-resourced families whose parents had the capacity to kind of, you know, give them extra time and extra support and for whom things were okay. Some young people described enjoying having more time with their families. Some enjoyed having less distractions from school and so on. So there are absolutely some positives that young people in particular situations were able to share about lockdown and the COVID restrictions. But for many children and young people, what we heard is this has been an incredibly tough time. And certainly for those children, young people who are in families already struggling in some way before COVID, those children and young people found it especially tough. If I think about some of what we heard during that period, we children and young people talking about being isolated, losing their routine and their structure. For some children and young people with special needs in particular, they found that really hard. We heard about living with kind of fear, fear of the virus, fear that they'd get the virus and pass it on to an older relative, and fear of what they can tell is happening around them in terms of economic uncertainty and, and job losses and so on. So we actually heard from most of the children, young people we spoke to, they described that this period had a negative effect on their mental health. And that, again, traversed a whole range of different experiences. But overwhelmingly, as I say, this was a tough time for many. Let's talk about a little bit about kids at risk of entering the child protection system in particular. I know your report talked a bit about the, the virus exacerbating some of their existing vulnerabilities, but also cutting off ways that they would otherwise get support or respite. Yeah, look, that's, that's exactly right. So certainly when we went out to speak to children and young people, we heard from a number issues around safety. So some of this were young people talking about their own situation. Some of it, they were talking about the situation of their friends or peers. There were young people who said to us, look, things often get pretty rough for me at home, but usually I can go to school during the day. So I get some time out. Or if things get really dodgy, then I can go to my friend's place and stay there for a few nights. And what they were describing is that during COVID, the usual strategies that they had to keep themselves safe weren't available. Now, more broadly at the Commission, we've been really concerned during this period. We've got a bit of a perfect storm for children in families struggling and, and, and doing it tough. We've had no question. All the research says we'll have been seeing in families an increase in family violence. We know there's been an increase in parental substance abuse, parental mental health issues, all of the factors that can drive serious issues for children at home. That's happened at the same time as children have been much less visible. So usually children are out at kinder or they go to school or they go to the sporting clubs uh, or they're seen by extended family. That network of eyes on children has really been shut off. And the third part of what I call the perfect storm is that services haven't been to respond to children and young people or make sure that they assess them, keep in contact, understand what's happening for them in the same way. So whether it's child protection, whether it's other child and family services, 
all of those services have had to change their mode of service delivery and stop the extent of face-to-face contact, that direct engagement. And there's no question that has meant it's much harder for them, even if a report is made to child protection or to a service, it's much harder for them to actually assess and respond to what's happening. So I have had significant concerns and we've been very active at the Commission in trying to understand what's coming through to child protection, understand what's coming through to police, understanding the kind of different responses of agencies and try and advocate to make sure that agencies as best they can in a COVID safe way, keep some contact with children and vulnerable families. And of course, the other fear too is those that are not being in contact with the system related to that perfect storm you just described. I know there were early on, particularly domestic violence agencies were noticing some increase in their traffic, but also deeply concerned that a lot of people were not getting access to help, that those problems were actually there. Is that also true across the child wellbeing system, a kind of overall drop in reports, but a fear that that is masking something that we're just simply not aware of? Yeah, absolutely. If you think about that lack of visibility of children that I've described, then it really does mean that particularly for children and younger children, whatever's happening for them, it's very, very hard in a kind of lockdown context for them to reach out, to make disclosures, to seek help in any way. So we have accordingly seen a reduction in notifications to child protection that, as we'd expect, has increased as time goes on and certainly as restrictions ease. But it has been my concern as Commissioner that we will see much more in coming weeks and months of what's been happening inside families, of what's been happening for children and young people, because we really have had families very, very cut off, experiencing more stress potentially than ever before, locked in houses together more than usual and more cut off from the usual supports, not only for the children, but for adults as well. I was actually about to ask you about that next. I know your conversations include some with carers and obviously you're interacting with carers, either families themselves or or kinship carers, uh, foster carers, those sorts of things. We've had others on this discussion talking about the impact of the virus and the lockdowns on carers and particularly for them too, getting rid of access to the supports they often rely on. What what have you heard about the experiences of, of carers? Yeah, look, similarly, I've heard from carers and kind of some of the peak groups supporting carers that unsurprisingly, this has been a really difficult time for them. So as I've just described, and our work sees this a lot, even at the best of times, some of the supports both for carers and the children in their care don't quite meet the needs. We're often talking about children, if they're children, foster care, kinship care, they're often children who've had fairly significant adverse experiences before they come into care and they have a whole raft of needs accordingly. Now when services are more cut off, when children can't see the counsellor that they would usually see, when the adolescent can't get out to the mental health service provider that he's kind of used to having contact with, all of that becomes much harder at a time when for many carers they have at least one but often more than one child in their home They're suddenly responsible for supporting home learning, as well as all of the other issues on top of that. It's been an incredibly tough time. I was worried in the early weeks of of the pandemic. I was really worried that we'd see a very sharp breakdown in placements, care placements. Now, we haven't seen the kind of extent of that that I feared. I've certainly heard of significant pressure on some placements and some breakdowns. But frankly, I think it's kudos 
to the many, many carers, both kinship carers and foster carers out there, that they've managed to do whatever they can to keep supporting the children, young people in their care. Incumbent on us, I think, to make sure we're getting that support back to them as, as soon as we possibly can and in ways that work in this new environment. You also mentioned in your report mental health. I mean, you mentioned it a second ago, the experiences of loneliness and disconnection and others. Tell us a bit more about what you heard there, particularly about both those groups who are experiencing mental ill health, but also it sounds like a lot of kids who are experiencing mental illness for the first time to a degree not, not experienced before during all this. Look, that's right. So as I said, when we interrogated our notes and the data, uh, all our records of all of the children and young people we spoke to, it was very clear that the majority had volunteered to us that their mental health had been negatively impacted during this time. For some, this was an experience where they had pre-existing mental health conditions. For some of them, those conditions had been well-managed or fairly settled, but during COVID, their mental ill health had been absolutely exacerbated. And for some, that meant that they'd had to return to acute services, admission into hospital. For others, they'd had to return and resume medication and so on. On the other hand, there were a large number of children and young people who described never having had experience of mental ill health before, but experiencing significant either anxiety or depression or other mental health issues during this time. We heard quite a lot about eating disorders, often not disclosed by the people themselves, but by their friends or peers who were worried about what was going on for others. And what was really interesting, at a time where services had moved so quickly and impressively to telehealth, to remote service delivery, speaking to young people who already had a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a counsellor, they were by and large prepared to connect, prepared to kind of access those services remotely. And some said it's not the same, but at least I, I can do it. Whereas for many young people who hadn't experienced mental health before, this was a time that for the first time ever, they were making sense of what was going on for them. They were admitting that they were having mental health issues. Some really struggled to feel that they could talk to their families about it and seek support that way. And many felt that they couldn't reach out and seek help at this time. For lots of those young people, in this sense of isolation, the idea of reaching out to a service and making contact about something so confusing with someone they've never met before and doing that remotely, it was an absolute barrier. They were just adamant that they weren't going to do it. They were going to wait till they could see someone face to face. So a really big reminder that yes, remote service delivery has been a saviour and we have, you know, all adapted quite amazingly. But I think we, we all need to remember it's not a panacea, it's not a complete substitute. Certainly some young people and others, I imagine, uh, absolutely still need some face-to-face. -face. Isn't that fascinating, particularly for the digital native, you know, kids that have grown up with this their entire life, but still at particularly early stages of an important relationship that that face-to-face -face is still so critical. It was a great reminder to me and to lots of the people that we've shared this with not to assume. You know, it's really easy to make assumptions about children, about young people in a whole lot of different ways. But actually, this whole process has reminded me once again, you can't assume. You have to go and ask them. You have to go and hear their experiences and hear what they have to tell you. And they'll be very, very clear that actually people don't listen to us enough. People don't ask us enough. We've got a lot to say about our own experiences, about our views, about what needs to be done differently, and, and not nearly enough people ask them the questions.
There you go. That's, I mean, there's a lesson to stand well beyond this pandemic. You also mentioned in your report a bit about young people knowing where to find help and having difficulties doing that. Do you want to say a couple more words about that? Yeah, look, one of the really striking things for me, and I, I think it was striking because I'm an adult, I work in, obviously, the Commission for Children. I know how hard services, government departments, how hard they work to kind of get the message out about the services they provide, uh, including mental health services, but other services as well. But one of the things we talk about mental health issues, so many young people, when they were describing what they were going through, and we would kind of ask questions about what kind of supports or services they, they might think about using, many didn't have any idea where to start. So they didn't know about whether there was a well-being counsellor or coordinator at work. They hadn't heard about some of the youth mental health services that I think about as being really well known. So it just again was a reminder for me that no matter no matter how much uh, we all feel that we are promoting our services, that we have kind of very high profile brands, there's always more work to be done to make sure that there is youth targeted information that is accessed and accessible in the places that children and young people go to and are likely to see. We just can't keep doing that enough. In general, I would say one of the other kind of takeaways for me from talking with children and young people is how often they felt that there just wasn't information generally targeted and tailored to them, whether it was about the virus and how to stop the spread of the virus, or whether it was about the changes that were taking place for their schooling, or whether it was children, young people in care, and the changes to the contact they'd have with their workers. The common thread there was the absence of information that is absolutely tailored to children and young people, even when they are the primary recipient of the services being provided. So again, that's something we fed into different departments, different agencies, some of which they've responded to. Again, I think it's a lesson that we can take from this, which is Let's remember that children and young people are beings in their own right. Yes, communicate with parents, communicate with other adults. But actually we do. If we have services that are related to children, that are provided to children, we have a role, a duty to communicate directly to them as well. That's well said. Might quickly also just mention education. I know that was another theme of your report. And particularly, I think we've all had an experiment with our own kids being their remote teacher. Do you want to talk a bit about what you learned about the experience of kids in relation to education and, and maybe how well you think we've managed as an education system to continue to engage kids in learning during this period? Yeah, so again, there's a theme really. If I go back to what I described before, experiences were very varied and often the experience depended on whether the child or the young person had a family that was fairly well-resourced and that could support. Now, that wasn't exclusively the point of difference, but it very much, in many cases, determined how well students managed to continue to stay engaged in learning during remote education. There certainly, we, we heard from many children and young people who described how hard it was, whether that was because their parents weren't around or their parents were kind of having to work at home or, or were just otherwise occupied and couldn't support them. For younger children especially, that was very, very tough. I think our model of remote teaching for primary school age children, for younger children, I think relied very heavily on someone, of course, being with those children and kind of coaching them through what they needed to do and helping them to stay focused. So if children didn't have those people around, that was particularly tough. 
we heard from other students who described being in houses that were really full, lots of people in the house. They might be the older sibling or one of the older siblings and they had to look after and make sure that the younger kids were learning. We talked to young people who didn't have the IT and although certainly in Victoria, the Department of Education provided IT equipment over time, I talked to a lot of young people who said that was great but nobody in my family knew how to use it. So that was still a real struggle. So there were many, many ways I think in which the experience of remote learning really widened the education gap. I think there's a real concern that children and young people who were on the cusp of disengaging or who were at risk, there's a real risk that during this time they've dropped off entirely. And the other group that I think really suffered during this time were students with disability. So I think, again, whilst teachers, the education department, other educators did an enormous amount of work to uh, enable some learning to continue remotely. I think wherever there were particular learning needs that needed a different approach, that needed some kind of tailoring, I think that often fell away. So a lot of those children with disabilities, with particular learning needs, and those without the supports at home, I think they really suffered and their education really suffered during this time. I feel like that theme has been one that's come up again and again through these conversations. I know Lisa Buckingham from Working for Victoria spoke about the pandemic sort of peeling back the curtain, I suppose, on what's already there and the ways in which already underlying vulnerabilities or challenges have just become all the more exacerbated. Let's turn to where to next. We begin to open up, thankfully, and hopefully we're seeing the other side of the pandemic, fingers crossed, and vaccine not too far away as well. Talk about some of the things you're seeing from service organisations, how have they managed to adapt to the new world and particularly where do you think their focus ought to be as we start to get back to something more like a normal level of service delivery? So as, as I was saying before, I think, I think we are yet to see the full social and economic impact of the pandemic and I think we're yet to see, from my point of view, the way that has played out for and impacted children and young people. I've been worried and fear that we'll see a widening of the group of children we consider vulnerable. Children who might have been doing okay before in families that were pretty stretched where the, the, the adults had quite a lot of issues but, but there weren't significant safety or neglect issues. I fear that during COVID and in the wake of the pandemic some of that might be playing out in a far more significant way and impacting children and young people. So I think what I'm seeing amongst you know, services and agencies, I think people are beginning to see that and respond to that. But also, I think in the main, most agencies are anticipating that the growth in demand that we will see in the weeks and months to come will be hard for them to manage. One of the ways of working that I saw occasionally and usually at a very local level at the height of the pandemic was good old good old cross-agency collaboration. And when I saw it, it involved different agencies locally working potentially with child protection agencies, with schools, with other local community services and sharing information as much as they could within the legislative framework, sharing information, working out who were the families that might need a bit of support and who was best placed to try and make contact and try and provide that. That seemed to me absolutely necessary in the circumstances and absolutely sensible and ideally something that we can systematize, something that we can support at a much more systemic kind of statewide level. 
And I think that kind of approach is going to be needed going forward. So if we really are going to see some more significant social issues emerge, greater prevalence of family violence, greater prevalence of some of the drivers of child neglect and so on, we are going to need to be able to work across agencies, across the silos that still trip us up so much in order to really understand those children, those families and what they need in response. People like me have long been saying we need to kind of focus more on early intervention. We can't keep waiting until, you know, situations hit crisis point. I think that's more important now than ever, because if we are seeing more children, more families tipping into the at-risk category, we've got to intervene before those situations get worse. We've got to do it from a human perspective. We've got to do it from an economic perspective. Thankfully, I have to say that the government seems to be entirely taking that path, that investment in early intervention in child and family services, particularly from the state budget two weeks ago, is an unprecedented level of investment. So I think that's part of what's going to be needed going forward. The other thing that I'll talk about that I'm seeing, which I think is really positive, is that the pandemic and the kind of prospect of supporting recovery from the pandemic and dealing with some of the social impacts of it seems to have been an opportunity for some who have been developing significant reforms, whether it's reforms in the education space, reforms in the child and family service space. There's an opportunity to kind of take that thinking and apply it. There's not just an opportunity. In fact, there's going to be probably a greater need than ever. And I see some agencies, some government departments, I see them absolutely taking that up. And so whilst there's a lot that I see in my job that's pretty grim, (laughs) there's a lot that causes me to be pretty gloomy and dismal, but I see there is real opportunity as we hopefully come out of the pandemic, certainly move into a different stage of the experience. I think there are opportunities to kind of take some of the good thinking that we've been doing and understand governments, community. We all understand that there are significant social issues that we have to tackle now and we can apply some of that good thinking and really ideally get the investment to match. And actually we could see some significant step change in the way we deal with social issues. I think there's plenty in that as a, as a positive silver lining. I mean, there are a lot of things we're having to do differently in, you know, particularly in relation to physical distancing. But some of those things you just talked about, they've been important reform themes in child and family services for a long time, right? Breaking down silos, getting better at intervening earlier, seeing the investment and the return that can come from early intervention, protective measures that pay off down the line. Those have been big focuses of both government and community service agencies for quite a while. So there is an element there of, actually, that's not something that needs to change. That is a direction we do still need to keep heading in. And like you say, here's an opportunity. I think that's right. And I think absolutely not speaking politically, because I think this goes across, you know, all kind of parts of the political spectrum. Governments often struggle to put significant investment in early intervention in some of those those areas that we've just talked about. But actually coming out of the pandemic, there's a need. There's going to be an an unprecedented need that government, certainly in Victoria, is recognising and responding to. And so, again, actually, that there may be some opportunities that can see some of those existing approaches really be ramped up and applied in a whole new way. I can't help but temper that positive hope as well by just recognising that that's probably a short-term window. You know, it's a stimulus investment now that will have to be paid back at some stage. But I think you're right, at least for the the short term, there's an opportunity to turn that stimulus into a really valuable long-term investment. 
And if we do it cleverly, we'll learn from the short-term kind of stimulus investment. We'll learn from what really works using that approach and then continue to apply it. We might not see the same level of investment in the same kinds of areas, but at least if we can learn and apply some of that and take that forward, then there's some hope. Let's finish with your role and your experience as the Commissioner for Children and Young People during the pandemic. You actually mentioned as we were preparing for this show that actually it's given you an opportunity to engage more with children than you have before. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? And also more generally, just how have you found the experience in your role? Obviously, face-to-face would be a big part of what you typically do. How have you managed to adapt to that and, and what have you learned? I'll talk about the engagement with children and young people first. We do that as a commission ordinarily. Any area that we're looking at, any inquiry that we're conducting, we heavily involve children and young people, increasingly in co-designing some of the approaches we want to use, feeding into the kind of planning and then obviously through consulting. But really what happened during COVID or at the beginning of COVID is we realised Not only do we need to understand the experiences of children in child protection, children in youth justice, those areas that we have a legislated oversight role for, but actually we need to understand the experiences of a whole range of children and young people because a pandemic can raise vulnerability, increase risk and vulnerability, increase marginalisation for any child and young person. So let's not assume. And It was a fantastic process for us. It really, it meant that we very quickly kind of scaled up our ability to engage with children and young people. The beauty of everybody having to operate online is that actually we could very readily access children and young people in all parts of the state and from all different kinds of backgrounds. So that was an incredibly positive process and we'll continue to do that kind of broad engagement work. And I think going forward, we'll do more work that actually reaches out to a broad range of children and young people, as well as focusing in on some of the young people we know are especially marginalised because we learnt so much from it. In terms of my experience overall, it's been an interesting time. I mean, the other kind of oversight change that we did was we knew some of the services that we oversight were having to change their approach. We knew we needed to keep on top of that and try and keep on top of what that was meaning for children. So we shifted our engagement with key departments, child protection, education and so on. So we were meeting fortnightly. We were getting really regular fortnightly data so we could try and understand what was happening in a far more frequent way. And I think that was really effective. And I don't think we need to do that fortnightly going forward, but I think some of those approaches will continue. The other observation that I would have, though, which I think partly is because when you are in a job like mine, you are ultimately trying to influence people, systems, services. And so our ability to influence as humans often relies on direct engagement. So there was a bit of a transition for me into how to try and engage with people and persuade and debate as effectively using the remote means. And similarly, I was doing that at a time, as was my colleague, Commissioner Justin Muhammad. We were doing it at a time when the health imperative was unquestionably the strongest priority. So trying to have conversations about trying to make sure that other risks to children, for example, couldn't be ignored during this period. We had to find ways to manage the spread of COVID whilst also attending to other risks to children. Some of that felt really challenging because the agencies we were talking to were 
Absolutely. They were guided by the health advice, of course, and by the health directives, and they were trying to find ways to make sure that they could operate in a COVID safe way. So that brought new challenges. It brought new challenges for them. And for us as an oversight body, it absolutely brought new challenges. I think we will all, from all sides, learn from the process. I mean, certainly I'm hopeful that one of the things we collectively take away from this period, anyone who's involved in the delivery of services to children, is just that there are some services that are absolutely frontline essential services. I think child protection workers are in there. I think a whole raft of child and family service workers are in there. And so, you know, we, we haven't had an experience like the last eight months before. Let's hope we don't again. But if we do, uh, my hope is there'll be a whole raft of learnings we'll take into that. The need to maintain a clear focus on children at risk and to understand that child protection workers and other child and family service workers are part of that frontline essential response. That's one of the many learnings I hope we take forward. That's a fabulous place to finish. For those listeners who are interested in the conversation, I do commend to you the report. You can find it on the Commission's website. It's a deeply insightful and enjoyable read, as was this conversation. Leanna, thanks for being part of it. No, it was good. Thanks, Tom.